Hello, and welcome to the January 2016 edition of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Two quick notes before we get started. I neglected to mention that we hit a milestone last month. It was our 50th Law Notes podcast, not too shabby. And as you may have heard in my opener, the Legal Foundation Board recently formally changed the name of this podcast and our related publication going forward to LGBT Law Notes to better reflect the broad scope of what we have long covered. All right, first up, the last month of 2015 brought us back to a big player from last year, the Supreme Court. This latest development is not related to marriage, though. What happened with this new Alabama adoption case implicating the full faith and credit clause, Art? Well, on December 14th, the Supreme Court granted a stay and uh, basically suspended the Alabama Supreme Court's decision, or at least its effect, in the case of EL versus VL, uh, which will now be known as VL versus EL at the Supreme Court if cert is granted. And uh, the granting and the stay of this case is very, very important. This is a case in which the Alabama Supreme Court refused to extend full faith and credit to an adoption uh, by a lesbian co-parent of the children that she and her partner were raising. Uh, the adoption took place in Georgia, and the Georgia Child Court interpreted the Georgia adoption statute to allow him to grant a second parent adoption, even though it isn't specifically authorized. It isn't also it isn't specifically forbidden. It's a matter of interpretation. Uh, the Alabama Supreme Court got into this because the couple actually live in Alabama. Uh, they knew they weren't going to get a second parent adoption in Alabama, so they established a residence in Georgia in order for the co-parent to be able to adopt the uh, children of her partner. And uh, they, after the adoption was finalized, they moved back to Alabama. And subsequently they broke up, and then a dispute arises about custody, and the co-parent, citing the uh, adoption judgment from Georgia, says, I am a legal parent to these children. I have a right to petition for custody. And the lower courts agreed. The trial court uh, issued a temporary visitation order, and set the matter down to consider the the claim for custody. And the intermediate appellate court agreed, uh, but the birth mother took the case to the Alabama Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that they felt that the trial judge in Georgia did not have jurisdiction to grant a second parent adoption because as far as they were concerned, that is the Alabama Supreme Court majority were concerned, the trial judge had misconstrued the Alabama adoption statute. In other words, they're saying that a difference of opinion about how a state court, a state's adoption statute should be interpreted, what kinds of adoptions it would cover, is a jurisdictional issue. And that seems to stretch the concept of a jurisdictional issue. There was a dissenting opinion uh, which strongly argued that this put into question all out-of-state adoptions, whether they would be recognized in Alabama. And this seems to be consistent with uh, Roy Moore's agenda, Roy Moore being the very, very outspokenly anti-gay chief justice of Alabama, uh, that the Alabama Supreme Court will not rule in favor of gay rights under any circumstances whatsoever, regardless of the merits of the case. 
and he seems to have uh, a majority of his court behind him on that. So at any rate, uh, the uh, uh, petitioner here in the Supreme Court, of course, is the uh, partner whose visitation rights were suspended by the Alabama Supreme Court's decision. And so now she brings to the Supreme Court the question whether Alabama can refuse to extend full faith and credit to this adoption. This is a crucial question because it's something that we've been relying on throughout the country. The courts routinely extend full faith and credit to court adoption decrees. That is, an adoption is a judgment by a court. And judgments are specifically mentioned in the full faith and credit clause. Uh, the only grounds on which a court can refuse to extend full faith and credit is if the court that granted the judgment did not have jurisdiction over the parties or the subject matter. And here, uh, interestingly, an argument made by the birth mother in the lower court was that the adoption should be void because they weren't bona fide residents of Georgia at the time the adoption took place. Uh, but that argument did not persuade the lower court and was not addressed in the Court of Appeals. Uh, and the Supreme Court didn't premise it on, on, on that either. I mean, if, if it was premised on the idea that the uh, party didn't have juris the court didn't have jurisdiction over the parties, that would be a different issue. But it's very clear that uh, Georgia statutes give the trial courts authority to grant adoptions. And uh, the question of which adoptions is a matter of interpretation of the statute. Many other states, courts have interpreted traditional adoption statutes in such a way as to allow second parent adoptions, even though they weren't expressly authorized. Uh, so what the trial judge did in Georgia was not in any way novel. But the significance of the Supreme Court granting the stay uh, is the big story for us because it's a very, very strong signal of the likelihood that they'll grant cert and actually take up the case on the merits. Or alternatively, they could even decide, based on uh, the papers before them now, to just summarily reverse the Alabama Supreme Court and send it back, uh, in which case there would probably be a per curiam memorandum decision out of the Supreme Court. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know. The Supreme Court has not actually issued a lot of full faith and credit decisions. It's an area where there's lots of speculation as to what's going on. Uh, but it seems pretty clear because uh, in a, a case that was cited in the petition uh, to the court asking for the stay, uh, Maryland versus King from 2012, Chief Justice Roberts had uh, explained in an in-chambers opinion what the grounds are for the court granting a stay of a lower court ruling while they're deciding on whether to grant cert. And uh, the first factor they look at is that there's a reasonable probability that the Supreme Court will grant cert. The second, a fair prospect that the court will then reverse the decision below. And third, a likelihood that irreparable harm will result from the denial of a stay. And it seems likely that the court would recognize in this case that terminating the temporary visitation rights of uh, the adoptive mother here would inflict irreparable injury on her relationship with her children. This, this is not something that could be repaired after the fact with an award of damages. Uh, so it seems likely that this uh, petition did strike a chord with the Supreme Court. So we may be looking at an important full faith and credit gay rights decision sometime this term. It depends how long they take. Uh, one, one other thing to add here is that 
family law practitioners have been telling sort of same-sex couples for a long time to get these second parent adoptions in case you cross state lines it's the one thing that would be recognized uh, above all else so it really would be uh, a, a bad situation if the Supreme Court doesn't fix this situation for yeah this that is doubt. well the Alabama Supreme Court decision is quite an outlier yeah and uh, so one hopes that the uh, the court will recognize the significance of uh, doing something about it right All right. Thank you very much. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss a decision interpreting Title IX in a very favorable way for two lesbian basketball players. All right, we are back discussing Videkis versus Pepperdine University, a federal case brought by two female basketball players against their former school. What should our listeners know about this case, Art? Well, what they should know is that this is another in a continuing body of case law that's been generated over the past year or so uh, saying that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. Uh, it's an important trend. Uh, it's, it's a bit uneven. Not all courts are buying into it. But it's, it's very important because of the difficulty we have on the federal level in getting Congress to adopt statutes forbidding discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity specifically. Uh, The EEOC has been taking a leading role on this. Uh, They've issued opinions in cases involving federal employment discrimination disputes holding that the ban in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on sex discrimination would apply in cases of gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination. Their sexual orientation decision, which we talked about in our uh, podcast from the summer, uh, was a decision issued in July involving a gay air traffic controller in Florida. And they said that as far as they were concerned, uh, sexual orientation discrimination claims are a form of sex discrimination covered by Title VII. Well, in this case, the uh, federal district judge in the Central District of California, Dean Pragerson, went the next step and said if sexual orientation discrimination is covered under Title VII, it should also be covered under Title IX. Title IX of the Education Amendment Acts of 1972 prohibits sex discrimination by any higher education program that gets federal funding, which pretty much takes in all of higher education. Right. Uh, so uh, in this case, uh, two women who had been playing basketball in Arizona State, they both transferred to Pepperdine and uh, with the expectation that they would play on the Pepperdine women's basketball team. But uh, some of the the coach and the athletic director got the idea that these two women were dating each other and might be lesbians, and they were just really freaked out. (laughs) It's very clear. Uh, One of the allegations in the complaint was that the coach had a a meeting with team members and said, quote, lesbianism was a big concern for him and for women's basketball, and that it was a reason why teams lose, and that it would not be tolerated on the team. And uh, staff members grilled these women about their alleged dating activities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The women have never come out as being lesbians, at least in the course of this litigation. Uh, But they're claiming that they were subjected to harassment, to intrusive questioning, and ultimately were never cleared to play on the team and dropped out of school. In fact, one of them attempted suicide unsuccessfully. Uh, so they brought this action under Title IX, 
and they're claiming sex discrimination, they're claiming sexual orientation discrimination, they're claiming retaliation because they did raise complaints about the uh, way they were being treated, but nothing was done about it except to uh, pressure them to quit school. Uh, and uh, the judge had to decide whether these claims could be brought under Title IX. And so he said, uh, in interpreting Title IX, courts often look to interpretation of Title VII for reference. And he noted a Ninth Circuit decision which stated that the legislative history of Title IX, quote, strongly suggests that Congress meant for similar substantive standards to apply under Title IX as had been developed under Title VII. Uh, so he took the ball and ran with it. Uh, he referenced the EEOC's decision from last summer and a handful of other district court decisions which have followed along, and he said the line between discrimination based on gender stereotyping and discrimination based on sexual orientation is blurry at best. The distinction is illusory and artificial, and claims of sexual orientation discrimination are gender stereotype or sex discrimination claims. And we should mention that a lot of this uh, case law that's been developing on this over the past few years is based heavily on a Supreme Court decision from 1989, Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, which accepted the concept of sexual stereotyping as evidence of discriminatory intent in a sex discrimination case. Uh, so uh, he says, uh, with respect to their sex discrimination claim, because they were claiming both sexual orientation and sex discrimination, he said, if plaintiffs had been males dating females, instead of females dating females, they would not have been subjected to the alleged treatment. And therefore, this is a sex discrimination claim as well as a sexual orientation discrimination claim. So there's a fallback here case the Ninth Circuit decides this goes too far on sexual orientation, they could still consider it as a sex discrimination claim. I think I was thinking, too, this, this Pepperdine is in California. They would also have, if for some reason they were to lose on all these claims, they would have California state law, would they not? To fall yeah, well, well? well, actually, their complaint, uh, their complaint alleges seven causes of action. Yeah. Three of them are Title IX. The rest are state law. Yeah. Uh, so they still had state law to fall back on. Yeah. But they wanted to sue in federal court, yeah. no, and so they, they needed to make it a federal question. Yep. So, uh, so this is uh, this is a good development. Uh, I've been trying to track, uh, as I've been doing law notes for the past few months, uh, the fate of the EEOC's decision from last July, and some courts have cited it and followed it. Some courts have cited it and said we can't follow it because of circuit precedent which holds usually older cases holding uh, at the Court of Appeals level that sexual orientation claims are not actionable under Title VII. Uh, and some judges just don't mention it at all. Uh, and the most infuriating are the ones where the court just, like in a footnote in passing, says, oh, by the way, sexual orientation claims are not actionable under Title VII. And uh, in this case, the plaintiff either adequately alleged a gender stereotyping claim or didn't adequately allege a gender stereotyping claim, so their uh, motion to dismiss is either denied or granted on that basis. Uh, so it's been uneven. Uh, but what I'm hoping is that with the accumulation of these cases at the district court level, we will get up to a court of appeals and get a forthright express court of appeals ruling that you can bring a sexual orientation discrimination claim under Title VII 
without alleging uh, sexual stereotyping, without alleging gender nonconformity or anything like that. Uh, and this would, of course, make the need for the Equality Act much less. The, the big uh, st- uh, bill that was introduced in Congress over the summer to amend all the federal sex discrimination laws to extend to sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, to the extent we get buy-in from the federal courts that these issues are already covered, we're pretty much home free. Uh, we may want to talk about the need to tinker with Title VII to try to cure some of its shortcomings and Title IX and the other sex discrimination laws, but the Equality Act may not become necessary. Uh, but ultimately we would need a definitive Supreme Court ruling in order to be sanguine about that. So in the meantime, of course, we have to consider uh, still pursuing uh, passage of the Equality Act. All right. Uh, We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing another interesting anti-discrimination development, except this one involves a Catholic school employer in Massachusetts. We are back discussing the case of Matthew Barrett versus Fontbonne Academy, a ruling from a Massachusetts state court judge finding that a Catholic school may not discriminate against a gay married man that applied to be their food services director. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah. uh, This is an opinion by uh, Massachusetts Superior Court Justice Douglas H. Wilkins, uh, which was rendered on December 16th. Involving Matthew Barrett. Matthew Barrett was a very experienced person in the food services industry. Uh, According to his complaint, he had over 20 years of experience, and he applied for an opening at the Fontbonne Academy to be the director of their food services. Uh, And uh, Fontbonne Academy is uh, self-identified as an evangelical Christian school. Uh, And uh, actually, evangelical Catholic school. And uh, he uh, – it's a, a uh, college preparatory school for girls. Uh, so he went for his interview and uh, he was told by the head of the school during the interview that every employee of the school is regarded as a, quote, minister of the mission, whatever the mission is of the school. And they asked him whether he could buy into the expectation that he would model Catholic teaching and values. And he responded, yes. Now, one of the reasons he probably responded, yes, if he looked on the school's website or if he was given any documentation about the school's non-discrimination policies, he would see that they had an express policy of not discriminating based on sexual orientation. So presumably he expected if that was the school's rule, he could comply with uh, whatever requirements they had on modeling Catholic teaching and values. So he said yes, and they offered him the job because he was highly qualified. Uh, So they gave him a form to fill out, new employee intake information form, and he was asked for contact information for an emergency contact. And he put down his husband. I mean, you put down your spouse for an emergency contact. So he listed his husband, uh, and two days later he received an email telling him that there was a problem and asking him to return to the school. Uh, So he returned and he spoke again to the head of the school, Mary Ellen Barnes, uh, who said that he could not be hired because, quote, he was a spouse in a same-sex marriage, which was inconsistent with the teachings of the Catholic Church. 
So he filed the discrimination claim uh, with uh, the Massachusetts uh, court. And the the thing to uh, realize here is this is a highly qualified person who had given up a prior job to come to Fontbonne Academy. And as soon as he realized he wasn't going to get the Fontbonne job, he got his old job back. So this is not like someone who's out of work. Uh, he has highly marketable skills. Uh, so he brought this discrimination claim. And their first defense was they said, we're not discriminating based on sexual orientation. We have a policy against discriminating based on sexual orientation. We just can't have any of our employees in a same-sex marriage because that is not modeling Catholic teaching and values. Uh, the Catholic Church does not approve of same-sex marriages. Uh, and so we don't think this is sexual orientation discrimination. We have gay employees. We don't discriminate against gay people. Uh, and Judge Wilkins easily rejected that argument. He said they're trying to draw some kind of status conduct distinction here, and the U.S. Supreme Court itself has refused to recognize such a distinction. It's, it's pretty clear that uh, not only does he have a sexual orientation discrimination claim, he has a sex discrimination claim, uh, very similar to uh, the reasoning of Judge Pragerson in the case we were just talking about, the Vedekas case against Pepperdine. And there's that great line in the Christian Legal Society case from Justice right. Ginsburg about yeah. status and conduct right. in the LGBT area. So he says there's sex discrimination here because if Barrett was female and married a man, Fontbone would have no objections to the marriage. And he pointed out that this is a civil marriage, that uh, Barrett is not claiming any religious significance to this marriage. Uh, so in terms of whether it is sexual orientation discrimination, the court said yes. So then it had to deal with a statutory issue and with a constitutional issue. Uh, the statutory issue being whether a statutory exemption from compliance with the state anti-discrimination law applied to this case. And here there was a, an interpretive problem that he had to deal with that is not resolved by prior case law in Massachusetts. And that is, uh, originally, when the uh, law against discrimination was enacted, it had a provision that said uh, that an organization which limits membership, enrollment, admission, or participation to members of that religion may discriminate based on their religious tenets in employment. Uh, so that's a broad religious exemption. However, in 1989, it's a broad religious exemption, but only for organizations that limit their membership services, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to members of, the, of a particular religion. Uh, in 1989, when the law against discrimination was amended to add sexual orientation, uh, a provision was added uh, saying that a religious organization need not comply with the employment discrimination ban where its actions, quote, are calculated by such organization to promote the religious principles for which it is established or maintained. Uh, so on its face, it would seem that that might apply to this case, that Fontbonne Academy was saying we can't comply with the anti-discrimination policy in the statute because it would undermine our ability to promote the religious principles for which we are established and maintained, that is, promoting uh, Catholic teaching and values for our students. Uh, but... Part of the problem is Fontbonne Academy does not limit 
its employment policies or its admissions policies based on religion. They will admit non-Catholics as students. They will hire non-Catholics as teachers and administrators. Uh, probably those who are teaching religious courses have to be Catholics, although I don't even know if that's the case. But at any rate, certainly for hiring food service people, I mean, most students will not have any interaction at all with him on a given day or well, during it, their whole education. They may not well, have any idea who's making the food. Well, it, it depends how their cafeteria right. system is set up and, and how visible the food service director is. But the point is, he's not being hired to teach them religion. <laughs> but in terms of the statutory exemption, uh, Justice Wilkins said, I need to reconcile these new two provisions because – if the provision that limits the exemption to organizations that limit their membership, uh, enrollment, admission, or participation to members of that religion, then Fontbon isn't entitled to the exemption. Mm. But if the uh, category established under the 1989 amendment is the applicable thing here, uh, then it seems pretty clear that they have a religious practice argument to make. So I have to reconcile these two things, and I think the way to reconcile them is to say that only organizations that qualify for the limited membership exemption would qualify for the other exemption as well. Uh, and he says no rule of construction provides certainty here, but the rules of construction that he discusses in his opinion nearly all point in favor of the plaintiff's approach, that is, of limiting the exemption to organizations that limit their membership, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so this is a questionable point. This is a point on which one might expect an appeal if Fontbonne Academy is inclined to appeal. And uh, I think they would be more inclined to appeal if Barrett is pushing to get the job. But since he found employment uh, as soon as he was his offer here was withdrawn, or his acceptance, because he had accepted, his acceptance was rejected, uh, you know, he may be reduced to a breach of contract claim. Uh, for monetary damages or something. But, of course, the gay rights advocate community is there much bigger significance for this case. Yeah, and, for other and, and I would think that the religious schools community also uh, would see a bigger significance. Yeah. So that's the statutory. But then there are the constitutional arguments that FAPA made. They said, look, we have a free exercise of religion issue here, and we have an expressive association issue here. They cited Dale against the Boy Scouts of America where the Supreme Court said that despite New Jersey's anti-discrimination law, the Boy Scouts were privileged under the First Amendment to dismiss uh, James Dale as an assistant scoutmaster because he had become the co-president of the Rutgers Gay Student Association and he'd spoken publicly and been reported in the newspaper. And the Supreme Court said, okay, he's a gay activist. And the Boy Scouts had a First Amendment right not to have a gay activist there because their formal policy was opposed to homosexuality. Well, they recently voted to change their formal policy to some extent. But at any rate, the uh, the school relied on that, and they said, well, we, we have an expressive association right here uh, not to associate with someone who is doing this activist thing of marrying his same-sex partner. And the court said, well, that's ridiculous. Mr. Barrett isn't an activist. He didn't go on TV. He didn't make speeches to the press. He isn't uh, signing up to teach or to proselytize. He's signing up to direct the food services. So we don't see that the Dale case applies. And then they they pushed for the ministerial exemption. Uh, this was recognized by the Supreme Court in uh, 2012 in the Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School case uh, involving a teacher. 
she was not specifically a teacher of religion, but uh, the school regarded all of their teaching staff as ministers. They had to be certified by the church as such, and they were all called upon from time to time to lead religious exercises and things of that sort. And the Supreme Court said that regardless of what Title VII may say, uh, a uh, religious school, such as the Evangelical Lutheran School in this case, has a right to discriminate based on their religious beliefs in hiring people who will be performing ministerial functions, that is, functions of a religious nature. Uh, all right, so here, Fompon Academy says, okay, we told him during his interview that every member of the staff is a minister of the mission and is expected to model Catholic teaching and values. So the ministerial exception should apply to our entire staff. And Wilkins was not buying that. He, he said that, that just goes too far. The ministerial exemption is intended to allow religious organizations to select people who are being hired to perform religious functions. Not necessarily everyone on their staff would be entitled to the ministerial exemption. Right. And he said uh, to apply the ministerial exemption here would allow all religious schools to exempt all of their employees from employment discrimination laws simply by telling their employees or by calling their employees ministers. Uh, and he said a lot of the discussion by the Supreme Court in its justification for the ministerial exemption in the Hosanna-Tabor ruling would have been unnecessary dicta if that was the case. Uh, it wouldn't matter whether that teacher at that school ever was assigned any religious function. They could just uh, say all of our teachers are ministers. Right. Uh, so the court wasn't willing to go for that. So they uh, judge granted uh, Mr. Barrett's motion for summary judgment. So on the merits, he's won the case. And then the judge said uh, the parties need to address whether the case needs to be scheduled for a trial on damages, which, of course, is an open invitation by the judge for them to settle the case. I think it's more likely that uh, the school will appeal if one of the organizations that specializes in litigating against gay rights steps up and says they're going to represent them on an appeal. Uh, so it'll be interesting. Since, since we have a somewhat out there interpretation of the statutory exemption in this case, I, I think the school doesn't have a very good First Amendment argument, but it might have a statutory argument. So this will be important, certainly under Massachusetts law. And many states have religious exemptions of one sort or another in their employment discrimination laws. And we also know that a minority of states, but a growing minority of states, have religious freedom restoration acts, which might be construed, depending on their wording, uh, to create a defense for religious employers. And I fully cases. expect... Uh that community to cite this ruling as an example of why we need stronger reference. Right, because, you know, food service directors may proselytize for same-sex marriage <laughs> or religious schools. You know, it's, it's something we have to contemplate. <laughs> Mr. Barrett may may exchange his chef's hat for, you know, an activist cap or something. Next right. thing you know, there'll be a T-shirt war there. <laughs> All right, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a bump in the road in a Wisconsin case brought by Lambda Legal to compel that state to issue appropriate birth certificates for children of married same-sex couples.
All right, we're back to wrap up with our of note segment for this episode. Last month, U.S. District Court Judge Barbara B. Crabb denied a motion for class certification and summary judgment in Torres versus Rhodes. Can you tell us why, Art? Yeah, this is a uh, class action, or a proposed class action that Lambda Legal was bringing on behalf, uh, initially in terms of their lead plaintiffs, of a, uh, a lesbian couple, Chelsea Torres and Jessamy uh, Torres. They both have the same last name now, having been married. They uh, used donor insemination to conceive a child, referred to in the court's opinion as A.T., T for Torres, and uh, the child was born after they were married. They followed the artificial insemination statute in uh, the state, uh, which says uh, that if you have a doctor supervise the procedure, and uh, the way it's worded, if the husband consents in writing to the insemination, then when the child is born, both parents will be listed on the birth certificate. So they followed the procedure. Uh, the, uh, the partner who was bearing the child uh, had a doctor perform the insemination with donated sperm, and uh, presumably the sperm donor had released any claim to parental rights, and uh, the uh, other mother had consented in writing to the procedure, and so they asked the hospital when the child is born, please, you know, birth certificate. They, they said no. Uh, the, under Wisconsin law, they said, in this case, the second parent will have to go through an adoption proceeding if they want to get the name on a substitute birth certificate. But at this point, we issue a birth certificate that only lists the birth mother. Uh, and they said, that's, that's how we do it, uh, unless there's a man involved as the father. Uh, and so uh, Lambda is representing these women in suing the state. And they proposed a class uh, that would extend to all same-sex partners where one of the partners bears the child through donor insemination. And they want in that situation, uh, and that, uh, actually, let me read the exact language they proposed. All same-sex couples who legally married in Wisconsin or in another jurisdiction, at least one member of whom gave birth to a child or children in Wisconsin on or after June 6, 2014, which is the date when the federal district court declared the ban on same-sex marriage unconstitutional in Wisconsin, and who requests birth certificates for such children listing both spouses as parents, regardless of whether they have already received birth certificates listing only one spouse as a parent, and all children born to such couples on or after June 6, 2014. That's a broad uh, class that they describe. And uh, the state, uh, in the person of the named defendant, who is the uh, Secretary of State, I believe. Secretary of Department of Health. Uh, right, the Department of Health, which is in charge of marriage license, uh, marriage license of birth certificates, <laughs> uh, Kitty Rhodes, she argued that actually the two uh, women here are not appropriate representatives of the class because they really can't represent the interests of people who didn't follow the Wisconsin artificial insemination procedures uh, and thus under the birth certificate statute wouldn't be entitled to have the uh, other parent on the birth certificate. And furthermore, they said, what about a lesbian couple where one of them has sex with a man? And that's how they become pregnant. And they, you know, the artificial insemination statute doesn't apply at all. Uh, you know, under, the, under those circumstances, what's the basis 
under our birth certificate statute for listing the other woman just because she's married? Well, that sort of bucks you over to the parental presumption statute. There's a statute that said a, a man is presumed to be the father of a child born by his wife, unless proven otherwise. A presumption is rebuttable in Wisconsin by uh, genetic proof that another man had actually fathered the child. Uh, and Lambda, in fact, proposed in this case to ask the court to declare that statute unconstitutional to the extent it didn't apply a parental presumption to married same-sex couples. Uh, that's another story uh, which the judge addresses as well. So at any rate, Judge Crabb, who actually was the judge who wrote the marriage equality decision, she said, you know, the state has a point here. Uh, these two women who followed the statute can't really represent the interests of the women who don't follow the statute or who where they become pregnant through actual sexual intercourse. And uh, I don't remember if we discussed it on the podcast, but there was a case from New York relatively recently involving a lesbian couple where the couple were sort of on hiatus and one of them ended up having sex with a boyfriend and getting pregnant. So it's not an inconceivable scenario. Uh, so the judge said, okay, Lambda, if you want to proceed in the class action, you got to find some more plaintiffs to be part of your uh, lead plaintiffs, your named uh, plaintiffs in this class, mm -hmm. class representatives. Class representatives, yeah, they have to be class representatives to present all the issues in the case not just these issues, right. you know. Uh, so she said, I'm not going to certify the class. And as to summary judgment, well, in a previous ruling uh, a few days earlier, uh, she had noted that Lambda had filed a motion for summary judgment before they even got a class certification. And she said, well, this is sort of unusual. You, first you get your class certified, then you notify the class, then you could move to summary judgment, and the notification to the class is necessary in case a member of the class wants to challenge the class representatives or the council or whatever, yeah. or wants to opt out. So she said, this is sort of odd. Uh, so she asked the parties uh, to submit papers to her uh, addressing the issue of whether there should be a waiver here of notice to the class, or whether this was a case in which notice to the class wasn't required. Uh, but in the meantime here, she said, look, I'm not certifying the class. I'm giving Lambda until the end of the month to come back to me. Uh, as long as uh, I'm not certifying the class yet, and it's uncertain to me whether Lambda wants to proceed just on the basis of representing these women, uh, which would result in a ruling that would extend to uh, same-sex couples who abided by the insemination statute requirements, uh, but it wouldn't settle it for others. Uh, she said... You know, we were scheduled to go to a trial on the motion for summary judgment uh, issues, but I don't think we need a hearing on that yet. Let's let's sort out first whether this is going to be a class action. Uh, so uh, Lambda had hoped to get a summary judgment together with a class certification to get the whole case over with because they felt their arguments as a matter of law could be decided without having a trial. Uh, so now they're back to square one. I, I presume they're either frantically looking for more plaintiffs or making some kind of strategic decision as to whether to just proceed representing the Torres family, uh -huh. uh, which would, of course, achieve something of significance. The judge also said, I don't see that the parental presumption statute is specifically implicated in this case. So I'm going to deny the motion for summary judgment as to that as well. So All right. A little speed bump here on yeah, a case yeah, that yeah. they I think they expected to be a slam dunk quickie. 
<clears throat> all right, that's all the time we have today. One quick plug. If you happen to be an attorney in the New York area and would like some free CLE credit, please join Art and I on Wednesday, January 27th for our annual year in review CLE at the offices of Davis Polk. You can register on the GAL's website. All right, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in February.